Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. Today's guest is Abigail Johnson, author of the YA contemporary titles, Even If I Fall, The First to Know, and If I Fix You. When she was 12, her family moved from Pennsylvania to Arizona, and she chronicled the entire cross-country road trip in a purple spiral-bound notebook and has been writing ever since. Abigail became a tetraplegic after breaking her neck in a car accident when she was 17, but hasn't let that stop her from body surfing in Mexico, writing and directing a high school production of Cinderella, and becoming a published author. Abigail spoke with me today about the process of getting an agent and how branding can limit your writing in some ways once you have a career to think about. Dessa has a plan. Work hard, get perfect grades, go to art school. Then she doesn't get in and everything changes. Fans of Morgan Matson and Sarah Dessen will love this story about chasing your dreams and falling in love along the way. Pre-order Your Destination is on the Left by Lauren Spieler today. My listeners always want to know how authors found their agent. So tell us who your agent is and how you landed them. So my literary agent is Kim Lionetti from Bookends Literary Agency, and I just cold queried her. I had, you know, my list of agents that I was interested in who were looking for the kind of books I was writing, and she was on my list. And so I was like, great. I didn't know a ton about her when I first queried her. She had represented a few authors whose books I really enjoyed in YA, but it was a very basic cold query. I think it took a little while to first hear back from her. I want to say it was like a month, I think. And at the time I was querying other agents and I was actually doing an R&R for another agent when I did finally hear back from her. And it was one of those, can you send me the rest of the book? I didn't have any sense that she was interested. And I sent it to her, I think it was a Saturday night, super late. And I had an email from her Sunday morning at like three in the morning. (laughs) When can we talk? Which was awesome. We talked right away. I could tell that she loved the book and that we had really complimentary personalities. And I really enjoyed her approach to being an agent. She was very collaborative. She likes to talk about projects and provide feedback. So it was a pretty easy decision to go with Kim. And I have never for a second regretted it. That is fantastic. It's interesting when I talk to people about their querying process, I know for a lot of aspiring writers, it's very difficult to be in that place, to be querying, because most of the time you're getting rejections and that hurts. And it can feel like a losing game when you follow some agents like on Twitter or you read their blogs and they talk about their stats and they talk about how many queries they get in their inbox. But at the same time, the query process does work. Almost all of the writers that I know that are published got their agents through cold querying, myself included. Yeah. And I had no writing credentials. I didn't know anybody. I literally was just using Query Tracker and Mm -hmm. Publishers Marketplace to kind of make my list. And I queried extensively. Truthfully, I queried way too early with this book. And it was my first book, so I didn't know what I was doing. But I just started, you know, sending out letters. People always say, oh, you can't query the big agents because they'll never talk to you. A lot of the big agents were the ones that wrote me back really good feedback for why they were turning me down. And that's what led me to keep making 
my book better and my query stronger so that when I did finally find the right agent for me, it was ready at that time. But I mean, I queried for about a year before I found Kim and I was ready to shelf that book and start querying the one that's actually going to come out in 2020. It worked out. It takes a while. It does. It takes time. I was querying for 10 years, but that again was because I was not ready. I didn't really know what I was doing. My queries were too long. My writing was not good. The writing was not ready to get out there. I didn't have critique partners. I wasn't getting feedback. Like I just thought I was an isolated genius and I was not. I was not even delivering a readable story at that point. But I learned from being rejected so much and so often that I needed to get that critique partner. I needed to have feedback. I needed to join writing communities and things like that. So even though it's painful, it's growth. And I think that it is uh, essential because the truth is, if you can't handle the query process, then you can't handle publishing in general because rejection never ends. I completely agree. And to your point about critique partners, I always say that was the biggest difference for me in taking me from aspiring author to published author, because I worked on my first book, If I Fix You, for six years. And at least four of those years were with no critique partners or with the wrong critique partners. I Uh you know, had a few false starts. But when I found my solid critique partners who we're still critique partners with today, and we read everything we write, they were invaluable in telling me, okay, this is working. This is not working. You need people. And you need people to tell you when something is great and when it's really crummy and you can't see it. Critique partners are huge. And for me, I found my critique partners through Maggie Stiefvater. She has this uh, critique partner love connection on her website. It's like a website where you can go and other authors who appreciate her kind of writing, which for me was huge because I found people who I already knew. They knew what good writing was. I had been at other forums and things where you find people and you exchange pages and you realize we appreciate drastically different things. So it was a great jumping off point to find Maggie's site and to that connection, find writers who sort of were looking for the same kind of thing. I'll be sure to link to Maggie's site in the oh, yeah. this episode credits so that people can find it easily. I've not actually used her site. I found my critique partners through a website called Agent Query Connect. It is a yeah. writer's forum. I used to moderate there. I don't anymore. I don't have time, but I used to be a moderator over there. And I love that community. I'm not there anymore. So I don't know if it's still functioning at the same level. But I do know that when I was there, like 2010, 2011, it was Mm -hmm. uh, high level stuff, free query critiques from other people. And then you also critique other people's queries, which can help you tweaking your own. Probably now there are so many more resources to finding critique partners. When I was looking, there weren't too many options. It seemed like there weren't a ton of YA people and not a lot of Mm -hmm. contemporary YA people, which is what I was specifically looking for. So there's a lot of great resources, but Critique Partners, absolutely huge recommendation for getting Critique Partners. Absolutely. I agree. And one of the things I tell people when I teach uh, writing workshops is find someone to read your stuff, not your mom, because your mom's going to tell you it's great because your mom loves you. (laughs) My mom thinks everything I write is brilliant, even when it's terrible. So, <laughs> Don't use your mom. That's always my first advice. No. Pitch Wars I did right before I started querying. That was what kind of gave me the encouragement to actually start querying. It was kind of my first big step into, oh, I'm actually going to do this. I'm not just fiddling away on my laptop thinking someday, someday. I had a finished manuscript and it was not ready to be seen by people. There was something there. I got picked for some mentors and they really helped me shape up my query so that I got good response rates on my query, got used to being in that 
arena and, you know, had some good people to prepare me for the amount of rejections that I was going to get. I mean, people always tell you you're going to get a lot of rejections. It's just hard to prepare yourself for the onslaught that you do actually receive. So that's true. that was a huge benefit to me. And that's still going on. People can join Pitch Wars. They do it every year. If you don't know what Pitch Wars is, it's kind of like the voice for authors. Definitely look that up. Yep. I was a mentor for two years. I love working as a mentor with people and stories that I find that just need a little extra push. Such a good experience and such a necessary experience for me. Mm -hmm. I think I would have waited longer before I actually sort of jumped out of the nest and I'm so glad. And you make a really good point about once you involve yourself, even in something like a forum where you are talking to other people and finding critique partners and even critiquing other people's queries or first pages or whatever the case may be, you're taking yourself seriously as a writer and you're moving yourself out of that isolation of just pecking on your keyboard in your spare time like a hobby. You're saying, I'm taking myself seriously enough. And that does make a difference. It makes you feel more like a professional. I went to a conference that was nearby, so I wasn't spending a lot of money. It was a smaller conference. It wasn't a huge like national one. It was a regional. I think it was like $200. It wasn't too bad, but I was spending money. This was the first time I spent money and invested in me being a writer. And as soon as I did that, I was like, okay, this is, this is real now. Yeah. Because in your brain, you're like, okay, I expect a return on this investment. Yep. I think I felt that way when I first bought Scrivener. Yeah, when you actually invest in yourself monetarily, it makes a difference in your approach, I think. Your YA titles are the first to know if I fix you and even if I fall. So tell us a little bit about Mm -hmm. each of your books. My first book is called uh, If I Fix You. That's actually the first book I wrote. It was the first one I started and completed. I did have another book that I started before then, but it was an adult Indiana Jones action adventure kind of thing. And it was a blast to sort of play with, but I I didn't really know what I was doing. And I kind of wrote myself into many, many corners that I couldn't get out of. And I finally realized maybe I should work on something a little closer to home. And that's when I sort of had the idea for If I Fix You, set in my hometown where I grew up in Arizona. So I'm very familiar with all of the basic settings. I wasn't having to do crazy amounts of research to try and figure out things that I'd never seen or imagined. It was stuff that I knew and it was experiences that I could relate to. If I Fix You is about a girl growing up in Mesa, Arizona, which is where I'm from, a coming of age story about her sort of surviving the summer after her mom walks out on her and her dad. She's a mechanic. She works with her dad at his garage and she's really into fixing things, whether it's cars or people or problems that she encounters in her life. And she's finally confronted with one that she can't fix. She sort of ends up trying to fix other things in her life, including the damaged older guy that moves in next door and her former crush that she's no longer friends with. Things develop and she kind of has to reach that point where she realizes that maybe some things are meant to stay broken. That's the tagline for the book. And she really can't fix anything until she fixes herself. My second book, The First to Know, which is the one that just came out in November, is about a girl who secretly tests her dad's DNA, hoping to find him some relatives he never knew his parents. And instead of some third and fourth cousins, she discovers a half-brother her own age that nobody ever knew about. And it kind of means that maybe her perfect, happy family isn't so perfect and happy. She wants to try to get to know a little bit about this half-brother, but she doesn't want to destroy her family in the process. The best way she can come up with to do that is to get to know him through his cousin. And she ends up falling for the cousin and the lies get bigger and bigger. And 
is she going to come clean about anything? And can she come clean about anything without wrecking everyone's lives? And then Even If I Fall is my upcoming book. It comes out in January, and it's about a figure skater in Texas. Her whole family is reeling from her brother murdering his best friend. He's in prison. She ends up falling for the last person she ever expected, which is the victim's brother. Mm. So I'll keep that one short and sweet. I love Mm -hmm. some of the stuff that you're pitching here, especially I'm so interested in The First Snow, which I actually have a copy of. I love the whole idea of DNA and I do a lot of genealogy and stuff like that. And it is kind of funny because you do find things that you're just like, oh, interesting. This baby was born uh, six months early. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the one that I feel like I get the most people coming up to me like, you know, my so-and-so had their DNA tested or so-and-so did this and that. And people are like, you know, I have this exact same kind of story. It's a kind of a current phenomenon, this ability to look at your blood and find relatives and find all these things out that people would never have spoken about. My dad sent me an article about a professor who had given his parents DNA testing kits for their anniversary. And boom, they discovered that the dad had had this kid years ago. and it kind of destroyed his family. And I, I read that and I was like, Ooh, that's a story. <laughs> kind of took it and did something else with it. There's a flip side of that, where if you run your DNA and you find out that your dad isn't your dad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The correct term in genealogy for that. I love it. It's so PC. It's a non-paternal event. <laughs> oh, you're kidding. No. Did you ever read the book called The Face on the Milk Carton? Yeah, Carolyn Cooney. Long ago. Yeah, thank you. Carolyn Cooney. Yes, Carolyn P. Cooney. Yeah. And I love those books. And I think they even made them into like lifetime movies. This girl literally sitting at lunch one day, looks at the milk carton and it's her own face on the milk carton. Throws over your whole worldview. And yeah, there's so much interest in in something like that for stories. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sidebar here. We have all these ideas of how people used to behave. People in the 1800s certainly never, ever had premarital sex. That didn't happen, right? I can tell you so many babies are born six months (laughs) after a wedding. Like, it's... Sure. People have always been people. People have always behaved in the same way. We just have ideas about how they used to behave. I think it was, like, in high school when they cloned the first sheep. And that was such a big deal. Dolly the sheep. That was a big deal. And I'm still waiting for the mammoths. I am waiting oh, for the right. mammoths. I, 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 I want that to happen so fast. I do too, and I'm not going to lie. I totally want to see dinosaurs too. It's like, whatever. Oh, I mean, me I too. understand. Michael Crichton like, made a point, and I get that point. I still want to see him. Yeah. <laughs> one of these days, I'm going to write a dinosaur book. I have one that I've been playing with, but it's so off-brand for me. So Jurassic Park meets Pern kind of thing going on. Oh, that would be so much fun. I want it to happen so bad, but we'll see. i got to oh, find the time to work on it. And brand can throw you in that way. It, it Once you yeah, are established, right? <laughs> it can kind of get in your way. Like if I wrote a rom-com. Like that's just not going to happen. But you know what? Then I look at people like Stephanie Perkins, you know? And she's got these horror stuff coming out now. And I'm like, she could do it. I mean, I love writing contemporary YA. And that's where I see myself. And I have so many ideas. But I do also have these little kind of things floating around. That's like, you should write a dinosaur book. And I'm like, I should, I should. <laughs> But isn't that the problem when you have so many ideas and you're like, I want to write all of the books. Which ones are actually going to be sellable? And are you actually going to be able to finish through? And I just have this idea. I'm like, oh, dinosaur book. Played around with a few chapters, but I'd have to plot it out. 
And that's the thing. Once you are a professional writer, it's not just a hobby anymore. You do have to say, will this sell? Will this alienate the readers that I've already acquired? Right. And then, of course, you have contracts. And so it's like, when do you have the time? I'm really glad my book that's going to come out in 2020, I've already written. So I, I should have a little bit of time to work on a few projects and maybe Dino Pern will be one of them. So we'll see. <laughs> that's so cool. You've gotten to play a little bit. There's some pretty different kind of stuff you've worked on. I've written across lots of different genres and I'm very lucky in that my agent and my editors have worked with me on that. And I was in a situation where my first two books, of course, were post-apocalyptic and that was really big, right? You know, 2011 through 2012, 13, 14, but you can't just write post-apocalyptic. I would say you could. I would read that all day, every day. You could, but you would be limiting your yourself to a particular yeah. kind of audience. You can write all kinds of stuff now, and we're we're all just going to come along for the ride wherever you're going. I so, hope so. Tell me a good YA dinosaur book. I'm like, I don't know. I can actually help you out on that. It's called Battlesaurus. It's like this reimagining of Napoleon at Waterloo if Napoleon had a team. Well, whatever it is, I'm totally going to be reading it. Coming up, the ease of world building when writing contemporary not to be confused with the idea that writing YA is easy. Rachel tries to get struck by lightning, hoping it will lead to finding her soulmate like it did for her mother. But when she discovers a devastating secret from her mother's past, Rachel questions everything and quits chasing storms. Now her best friend has ditched her, her mom's angry with her, and the evolving relationship with her friend Jay starts to unravel. The impulse to get struck by lightning resurfaces, and there's a storm coming. Read Soulstruck, the new young adult novel by Natasha Sinel. You focus on contemporary YA, so is there a reason why you began with that specific genre and then continued to write in it for now? Like I said, the first thing I started was sort of an action-adventure I tend to write a lot of what I'm reading and really enjoying. And so when I first started writing outside out of college, I was like devouring Clive Cussler. I was like, oh, I want to write something like this. And it, that's a very special skill set. And I tried my hand on it and I was working with like Atlantis and Nazis and all kinds of stuff that I loved to personally digest as a reader, but to produce as an author, it was much more challenging. And it was a constant battle to get my brain to go that way. I've always been a voracious reader and I kind of would read whatever I could get my hands on. But I had also consistently always read YA. When Twilight came out, I was was so on board with all of that. And I started reading more YA. But I had this vision of a girl sitting up on her roof, talking to the boy next door. And I'm seeing them talking and I'm noticing things about them. Like she doesn't want to get off her roof and he doesn't want to go back inside his house. What's wrong with his house? What's wrong with her house? what happens when the girl gets off the roof. And I, it, it was just one of those things that just sort of, I started without any clear idea of what it was going to be. I didn't know that it was going to be a contemporary YA book. I didn't know that I was going to write it, you know, and it just sort of kept coming from there. This is back when I didn't have any idea where I was going with story. And now I do. And when I start a book, that's why it took me six years because I didn't know what I was doing with it or where it was going. It was just sort of this kind of open-ended sandbox that I would play in every day and mm-hmm. see what my characters were doing even though it took me a very long time, it was never hard to get into the mindset of these characters and to invest in their world. And I didn't have to take a break for a month and go to the library and check out 40 books on Crete. 
I could go up the street and go to Sunsplash or go wherever and be like, okay, this is where they are and this is what they're doing. Mm -hmm. It felt much more natural. And then I also, I could delve much more into the emotions of the characters instead of the chase scene. Not that I don't love a good chase scene and there's a fight scene in my first book and, you know, different things like that. But it was much more about the emotions that I feel like no matter how old you get, those emotions from those teenage years, they resonate so strongly. You're right on the cusp of adulthood and everything feels so present and so important. And I kind of loved spending time in that headspace. And people still will ask me now, it's like, oh, you think you'll ever write an adult book? I don't know that I will. Whatever genres I end up playing around with, I think I'm always going to want to write YA. There's something so beautiful about contemporary YA, especially real, you know, the aspects of dealing with a broken marriage between your parents. I find that so interesting and universal. I kind of love writing with that. My car accident when I was 17, that was a before and after point in my life. So there's a lot that I think about right in that time and before that time, because it was such a stark difference between the two that I feel like I can remember that time very, very well being 17 and all of the things that go along with it so clearly because there was such a drastic change that it kind of helps me to stay in that mindset a little bit for my characters, if that makes sense. I have found that contemporary is the easiest to write because as you were saying, I don't have to read 40 books about Crete or wherever I'm setting this book. I can write about anything in my immediate area. And I know exactly what I'm talking about. So I always set my books in Ohio because I know Ohio, I know the weather, I know the plants, I know the animals, like I know these things. So that's what I'm going to write about when I'm writing a contemporary and it does move more quickly. There's still research Mm -hmm. just like in the female, of the species. I had to do so much research about like really horrible things like decomposition rates of bodies and things like that. But I am not spending 20 minutes trying to figure out how a room is lit. Like I was doing for a madness so discreet. I'm like, well, is this room lit with candlelight? Is this gas? Is this electric? Mm -hmm. Do they have electric? And I have to go do 20 minutes research to figure that out. Yeah. Just to know how this room is lit. So that's hard. But I like what you're saying about writing a character driven story as opposed to a plot driven story. But yet as a reader being drawn to both because it is so much fun to read and enjoy those stories. I rewatched Jurassic World the other day and I had so much fun. Mindless fun with dinosaurs and motorcycles. And I'm like, this is so awesome and I love it. I totally agree. <laughs> I love War and Peace. War and Peace is a great book. So, you know, it's like mm-hmm. I, I can go either way. I have authors that I read because I love the way they write. They may not be my favorite storytellers. They have great characters, but maybe they don't have... And again, there are some brilliant authors who manage to do both, and that's what I aspire to. I want to have characters that you care about and you empathize with, even if you don't like them or you do like them, whatever. But I also need them to be involved in a story that makes you turn pages endlessly. So that's always the goal. It is easier when it's contemporary because in a way you can just remember or you can just go look. You don't have to do intense, intense research. You can really sink into... The characters. And again, there are some brilliant authors who get to do the research and do all of that together. That's, that's a little beyond me. I've struggled with that a little bit, like I said, with my very first book, trying to bring it all together. So contemporary feels much more my speed. 
you were talking about the emotions of teens and people asking you when are you going to write an adult book that happens so often uh get used to it um <laughs> yeah people always ask YA writers that they're like when are you going to write an adult book and it's yeah. almost like they look at it as a graduation dude i write for I teens because that is when the emotions i feel are the bluntest and you feel yes. everything so deeply usually the people that ask me that question are the people who don't read YA it's not like it's a lesser thing I was reading YA as an adult way before I thought about writing it. Most of the people I know who read deeply are adults, and we just love this time period, this period in someone's life. It's so pregnant with possibility for all kinds of things, you know? It's not like, oh, I'll one day, like you said, I'll graduate to adult. No, I don't see it that way at all. If I ever choose to write adult, it's just a different thing. Lastly, how Abigail's accident shapes her unique perspective of life and people and where to find her online. So you were in a car accident at the age of 17, which made you a tetraplegic. So can you talk a little bit about how that impacted your life and how you have overcome it and the struggles that you faced then from that perspective as a writer? It's one of those things that you can't even conceive of at, well, I don't think at any age, but certainly not 17. I was going to be a teacher. I was going to go off to college. You know, and then it was like, no, no, you're going to be in the hospital for a year instead. And you're going to have to learn how to do everything over again. And a lot of things are just going to be gone. I also realized that if I hadn't had my accident, I don't know that I would be a writer. I, I, I don't think I would have. I, I would have gone on to be a teacher. And what happened was I didn't. I stayed here and was in physical therapy. And I didn't really have time to think beyond the next day. There was no point um, for a really long time. I had no real direction beyond just, again, day by day by day. But I had a really good girlfriend from high school who was taking some classes at the local community college, and she was telling me, hey, you should come take classes with me. And and so I did. I, I took a class with her. We took a Greek mythology class together. Um, I always loved mythology, and it turned out to be amazing. And what was really great about it was that I completely connected with the professor. She was wonderful. And when that class ended, I was like, well, what else do you teach? And it turned out she was the head of the English department. I think I took just about every single English class that the school offered and uh, every class that she offered and then other classes from other teachers. And I sort of rediscovered writing, rediscovered it as a, as a future, not just something that, you know, I, I always wrote a little bit as a kid, but never, never with the idea of actually becoming an author. And I, I credit that teacher, Professor Susan Moore, with showing me, no, no, this is something you can do and this is something that you should do. So I started writing. I started working on my action-adventure, Indiana Jones kind of novel and sort of playing around with that. And that all led to actually becoming a writer. I'm thrilled that I found a job, a career that actually suits my situation so perfectly. You know, authors, this is what we do. We we sit down behind a laptop all day and I, I was going to do that anyway. So I'm very grateful that I was given a desire to do something that so perfectly suited my situation. I love writing. I wouldn't want to do anything else. That's not to say that there aren't challenges and things that are harder. I mean, that would have been true no matter what I chose to do. Mm -hmm. I type a little slower probably than most people, but I still type. I kind of actually type with my knuckles, <laughs> but I actually type quite fast and I've, I've found that it works really well for me. And it's so fun to get to play and to create. I feel like I have a different perspective on life. I spent a lot of time on the sidelines watching my friends and different people go off and do the things that I had planned to do mm -hmm. for myself, mm -hmm. but they didn't quite work out that way. In my books, I, I didn't realize I was doing it until somebody pointed out to me, I think like after the second book, 
that I like to write things for my characters where they're sort of humming along through life and then something huge happens and they can never go back. I was at a panel a couple weeks ago talking about this, that I don't write magic wands in my book. There's never a scenario where something happens and it fixes everything and you can go back because that's not real life. It's not, it's not life that I've experienced. And I found it so, so much richer in my own life. And so I do this for my characters, this life altering thing happens. And instead of fixing it and going back along your merry way, you have to course correct. And it, it forces you to do something that you never thought you would do to push through it and to find strength and resiliency and to figure out a new way to move forward. And I kind of love that for my characters, for myself, to find the new way to move through the hard thing, through the pain, through the, through the challenges. So I do that. I do that with my characters. I don't write magic wands. And I don't know how much of my decision-making through my characters comes from my accident or if it's just my worldview, but I, I think they're, they've both been informed together. You mentioned a magic wand, and that's something that frustrates me as a reader when I'm reading a book yeah. and suddenly everything's going to be fine and things get tied up very neatly with yeah. a bow. And that never appealed to me even when I was younger. Like there's something very disingenuous about that. I'm just like, no, I mean, that's not how it works. Yeah. Just to be more literal, I love magic wands like Harry Potter. You know, I'm, uh, sure. I love magic things, but I don't I don't like the sort of sweeping, oh, well, we will fix this for you, you know, and not just in relation to like disability, you know, but I mean, that's a huge turnoff to me if I read a book and all of a sudden somebody gets their sight back or they get their this back or they get their that back. And it's like, yay, we found the, the thing. And I'm like, but even if I'm reading fantasy or, or genre or whatever, I still want that reality to resonate with the world that we actually live in, mm -hmm. where that doesn't happen. You don't get to, you know, I'm not going to wake up tomorrow and be able to walk again. That's not my reality. Mm -hmm. My characters are never going to be able to unlearn the things they've learned or put their families back together completely the same way they were before. They have to decide if the broken family is still worth keeping together, if the sibling is still worth, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, that's the kind of story I want to write. And that's the story, kind of story I want to read. The what do you do after the horrible bad thing happens? How do you move through that? Whatever it may be. Realism has a place even in genre writing like fantasy or science fiction. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so last question. What is up next for you and where can listeners find you online? So my next book is called Even If I Fall and it comes out on January 8th. And that's the figure skater from Texas whose brother is arrested and sent to prison for murdering his best friend. And her whole family is sort of reeling from all of that. And the book picks up a year after his incarceration. And that's when she starts to fall for the victim's brother. Oh, I really love that story. I got to revisit a lot of fun things. I used to be an ice skater way back when, and she's a figure skater. So that was really fun to kind of play with. Yeah. So that one comes out on January 9th and it's available for pre-order everywhere. You can find me online. My website is abigailjohnsonbooks.com and I'm on uh, Twitter at Abigail's Writing, Instagram at Abigail Johnson YA. Facebook is also Abigail Johnson YA. Everything's linked on my, my website. If you want to come by and visit, you can sign up for my newsletter and all that good stuff.
Writer Writer Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. If you find the podcast or blog helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting GoFundMe.com and searching for Writer Writer Pants on Fire. Or visit the blog by going to WriterWriterPantsOnFire.blogspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and then the PayPal button. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Join me next week for another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where writers talk about things that never happened to people that don't exist.